In this episode of 92i Talks, Jim Lear and Robert McNeil, the two legendary TV anchors and founders of the PBS NewsHour, sit down with their friend and author Roger Rosenblatt to discuss everything from the current presidential election to the nation and the world they covered and observed during their distinguished careers. The conversation was recorded on October 25th, 2016, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Thank, thank you so much. It is an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. Um, an honor to be with two old friends and the most distinguished, most accomplished uh, journalists ever on television. Um, it's Jim's a little shocked because I never really have a kind word for Jim. And <laughs> But true, it's, true, it's, true. Still, it's still the truth. Uh, so an honor and a pleasure, an honor to be with them, um, and a pleasure to be in a trio where I can be known as the kid. <laughs> We're going to talk about the election uh, first, um, and then uh, talk about the lives and the works and the observation of these two distinguished gents. Uh, Susan said at the beginning that this was an unusual election. That is one way to put it. The other way is, what the? <laughs> it's fair to say that uh, Mr. Trump has made this an unusual election, but has his candidacy done any good, either for the system, for the nation, eventually for the campaign, the, the presence of so unusual a character? Yes, I think so. Um, it has, together with Bernie Sanders, it has given, I think, rather late, uh, paid rather late national attention and brought to light the deep unhappiness of the American middle class, which feels it has suffered from all the things that we uh, read about. And I think their unhappiness, if allowed to continue, is poisonous to the democracy because the country was known and celebrated for a happy and contented and prosperous middle class, known around the world for that. And the, it, is, it is baked into, I think, into the, um, into the American social contract that um, there won't be equality, but there will be a kind of egalitarianism which gives you opportunity. And if people see that disappearing, as I think they do, and is made evident in this campaign, then uh, I think that's very important for the future. Jim, do you think the, uh, about Trump doing any good for the country or for the system? I mean, for the, for the, the campaign itself, um, we know what, we know the destructive elements of it, but was there anything good to come out of it? Well, I agree with what Robin said, <clears throat> as I always have for all these years. It's always just uh, well. Nothing's changed, nothing's changed, nothing's changed. No, I think he's absolutely right. But uh, make sure that everybody understands, and I think Robin would agree, Trump did not invent this. He didn't discover it on his own. It was already there. What Trump, what Trump did in his uh, way uh, was bring uh, attention to it, and, not, and, and very little attention had been paid uh, to it until Trump did that. That's it, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of the good that he has brought to the process, because I think to look beyond that, there's a long list of things that he's brought to the process that any neutral observer, any 
even-handed journalist or even uneven-handed journalist would, or any even-handed or la, 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 <laughs> would have to look at, at the way he went about what he did has been, uh, has had a, a huge effect on the way people communicate and uh, the, the world of journalism. Uh, journalism has been affected probably permanently because of this. Would you elaborate on that? Well, uh, the, the kind of, there are three kinds of journalism. Legitimate journalism. There are there, there's straight news journalism. That's the kind Robin and I always practiced for 112 years, collectively and individually. And then there's analytical journalism, and then there's opinion journalism. Each one is real and legit. And uh, but they were always carefully labeled, and they were always separate. And um, and before Trump came. There were already, those lines had already begun to frazzle a little bit. And so you had Fox and you had MSNBC, two glaring examples uh, that had become a little bit one side or the other politically. And uh, in the old days, that was a no-no. Well, in current days, that is no longer the no-no. And what Trump has done now has taken it another step. When you cover a candidate for president of the United States, if for whatever reason, you conclude as a journalist, as a journalist now, a professional, somebody whose job it is to look and see and report back, observe, talk to others about it, and report back, makes a a negative, uh, comes to the negative conclusion that say one of the candidates, just as an example, just to make up something, let's say it's a sociopath. Do you cover the sociopath candidate the same way you cover a non-sociopath candidate? <laughs> With the same rules, the same wah-wahs, everything. I think that, that, uh, that we were, we're going to come out of this election, no matter the, the end result, saying, examining that thesis. My hope and prayer is that we don't get carried away with it, that we don't, uh, that we don't overdo it, that uh, we don't decide, oh, well, he's a sociopath, so we can do anything. But at the same time, we figure out a way to separate the two in a professional way that is still even-handed and is still seen as neutral and is still seen as fair. Has Trump been right, Robin, that the media is against him? Uh, To a large extent, uh, yes. But he's, uh, whatever they're against, he's brought on himself. Um, And... uh, by violating or disregarding most of the norms that have been habitually thought of as appropriate for a presidential candidate in uh, truthfulness or truthiness or in, uh, in his dismissal or denigration of certain groups and so on. He's, he's, he's carved out a new empire that, is, uh, that has got a lot of people very, uh, very upset because if you follow what Jim's been saying, which I always do, uh, he's, he's, no, 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 it's the other way around. Yeah, the other way around. <laughs> he, um, he's made it he's put journalism in a real perplexity. Do I cover this guy straightforwardly and seriously? I mean, well, one of the criticisms of the media, and I'm still old-fashioned enough. I think it's a plural 
now, not a singular, because how can it be it when it's all these different things? Television in particular gave Trump extraordinary time beyond its straight journalism coverage because he was so entertaining, and they got good ratings for it. And Les Moonves, the head of uh, CBS, said, well, it may not be good for the country, but it's good for CBS. And, and he, he got extraordinary coverage of his rallies, and, which were very entertaining. So, and he knew how to use that because of his experience on television and so on. So it's thrust the media, all of them, into in areas of perplexity they were never in before. Um, and, and let us all to examine ourselves. I thank God we weren't still in the business. Oh, I say that little prayer every day. <laughs> I, but, 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 you know, Roger, I, uh, I think, and I may be wrong about this. I mean, people may disagree with this. My, make it very quickly. Um, uh, I will make my theory very quickly about uh, what happened here with the press and Trump get where we are, get us where we are today, is that at the very beginning, Trump was considered to be uh, a joke. Uh, the birther thing was, oh my God, how could anybody who didn't believe that President Obama was born in America, I mean, this guy's running for president? Oh, give me a break. And the first thing he did is he walks down the, the uh, uh, escalator at Trump Tower and, and talks about uh, uh, the wall he's going to build, and then the next thing he does is he attacks. So the conventional wisdom among the professionals, mainline journalism professionals was this guy's toast forget it don't take more don't worry about it it's just a matter of days mm -hmm. and then he kept doing things that were a little more outrageous and just a slightly a little bit and and all we did i mean say the big we not not i'm talking both robin and i were both uh, uh 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 sitting on the porch by then trained observers trained observers yeah. we were trained observers of other observers we were trained observers of the trained observers right, right. <laughs> Uh, at any rate, to make a, try, make a, a long story not quite as long, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, we just kept reporting what he was doing, uh, and, that, and that alone, just reporting it straight. Uh, and everybody said, well, this guy's nuts, and he's, he's going to be out of here. Well, boom, they started with 17 candidates, and boom, my God, suddenly, he's, he's leading in the polls, and, and then they had to start treating him seriously, and, oh, my God, what was Trump University about? Oh, my God, what was his relationship with women? All those stories that should have been done earlier but were not done because nobody took him seriously as a candidate by the time they got to it. For instance, let's say, let's say just, for, uh, just to make my point, and I am going to make my point now, okay? <laughs> let's say that we had known about all his relationship with women and his, his attitude toward women and the groping and seen the tape tape was done in 2005. Right. When did it come out? Three or four weeks ago. What if it had come out at the beginning of the uh, campaign of Donald Trump or maybe even halfway through it? All that, I don't want to say that all of that digging had been done then. He might not have been the Republican nominee, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. End of point. Let me, um, Rachel Maddow did something uh, very effective the other night. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, she created a fable and had cartoonish uh, illustrations for it. The fable was based on the idea that 
in election season, we are a family, and we have our family reunion at this point. And a family reunion has all sorts of odd people coming to the family, people you recognize and people you don't, people you haven't seen in years, and so forth. So the analogy of the fable was really quite good. Then she says, a cousin shows up that nobody has ever seen, but it still claims to be a cousin of the family. And first he's rude, and then he's lewd and makes advances towards the women in the family. And then he gets more and more dangerous and more and more dangerous and more and more dangerous to a point that he threatens the very existence of the family. And what she was doing was pinning that analogy on Trump saying that he would not accept the results the of result the election. Of the election. Yeah. Um, and so I, what uh, I think Rachel was concluding was we have not only somebody not to laugh at, but a very dangerous character. Do you think he's a dangerous character? Uh, if he became president, uh, many, I'm not a commentator, so I'm not commenting, but uh, many, many people have said that he would be a danger to the democracy. I mean, the fact that he's cozying up to Putin uh, the current New Yorker has him being sworn in as president by the Chief Justice, and the uh, significant other for him holding the Bible is Putin. <laughs> Bill Clinton holds it for Hillary on the same page. But um, yeah, his, uh, his demonstrated ignorance of many of the issues that put this country on edge or on peril in the world, Putin, for example, in, in Crimea and the Ukraine, uh, and his oversimplification of many issues, um, and his uh, casual reference to, uh, to the use of nuclear weapons. Um, I covered Barry Goldwater for most of the year, 63 and 64, and we were at the New, New Hampshire primary, and Goldwater casually mentioned at this press conference that he thought, uh, yeah, maybe NATO field commanders should have the use of, uh, of uh, tactical nuclear weapons. Everybody ran for the phones, and it dogged Goldwater for the rest of the year and gave rise to the Daisy Petal commercial Absolutely. that was shown only once but became uh, notorious. So um, um, for all kinds of reasons that various experts in this area are not, and I'm not including the economy, um, believe that he would be a danger. Jim? Uh, I'm not a commentator either, but if I were a commentator, here's what I'd say. I'm uh, not a radish uh, either, <laughs> but if I were a radish, let's get on with it. I think <laughs> we're not pundits. We're not pundits either. We're not commentators. We're not pundits. Good. good. But if we were pundits or commentators, yes. that's what I would say. Yeah. Right. No. The um, uh, seriously, I think that um, uh, a lot of this is about whether or not the. He has, in fact, been a damaging force right. in any kind of lasting way is going to be resolved on election day. In other words, if, if, he, if, if he is thrashed, I mean, if he wins, I mean, uh, if he wins, uh, well, let's put it this way. If he loses by 10 or more points and say 400 or more uh, electoral college votes, um, my guess is that his ability to continue to uh, be a force will be reduced dramatically, and maybe to he may be reduced into basic harmlessness. Um, uh, if by chance that's not the case, 
and he's still got some life, and he's still got some people uh, that, 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 are, that will listen to him and pay attention to him. Um, and the press is going to have to make a decision there too. What are they going to do after this guy is lo- he's no, he loses? Let's assume, he lo- let's assume for discussion purposes he loses, okay? Uh, and he does, but, but the margin, but, but people, the, American journalism isn't going to decide, well, do we still quote this guy uh, every time he does something and he, and he walks out and boom, boom, booms? I don't know. Um, I think it's important what happens to all the people who supported Trump after, supposing yes. he loses, yeah. as the current polls seem to suggest he will. Um, although I have a little reserve. Uh, skepticism and probably paranoid that there are hundreds of thousands of Trump voters who haven't signed up to any poll or admitted it to any poll and are going to burst out on election day like the Brexit voters in England to whom they've been compared. I think it's very important that the media and the political system and the so-called elites pay attention to all the people who have, who for whom Trump has been a megaphone and a voice, because their unhappiness with their situation, which is real, some, some commentators have called, it, uh, have called it shame, others anger, but whatever it is, it is a huge force in this country, and as I said earlier, vital to the stability and the, uh, and the, and the hum- uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for, harmoniousness of the democracy, that they find some answer for their... Uh, for their I agree, absolutely. Robin, but, they, but, but at the same time, that is not an excuse for the racism and... No, I'm not suggesting and, that. ...and the, all of that. It, yeah. But it, uh, it's certainly not, and, and that I want to get to, too, in the question of the haters that he has um, uh, caused to arise. Exploited. Exploited. But um, holding just on the idea of the working man who feels out of it, uh, which is uh, the vote, the, so often the Trump voter. Um, the other day, uh, I pulled a Jim Lehrer. I want to tell you what that means. That means you start a fist fight with somebody, you're, you're old and you're out of shape, and you start what? a fist fight with somebody. <laughs> the, um, when Jim was recovering from an operation, his wife, Kate, said, would you come over and take him for a walk? A lot of people think that that means just accompanying somebody, but actually I almost had a leash, and it was good because we were walking in Cleveland Park, and um, a guy goes five or six feet beyond the stop sign level. And Jim, just recovered from an operation, goes lunging after this guy to kill him. So luckily I had the leash and was able to draw him back. The, the, uh, I could tell you I other stories, but the night is short. displeasure. Yes. I, That's all I did. Yeah, I know. So I pulled him Lara the other day in a pizzeria. Uh, uh, the, the guy behind the counter was looking admiringly at Trump on TV. I say, you like this guy? And I deliberately provoked a, an argument with him. Always a good idea to pick a fight with a guy who's twice your size, half your age. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, um, but I, I had him in mind. Nonetheless, I got out of there without my head handing, being handed to me. And though obviously I was better at it and could argue it and things and said, you want him to be near your daughter and all the uh, predictable things, he said at the end of this, he, I'm an outsider and he is for the outsiders. He's an outsider. And I walked away from that thing thinking, um, wasn't there a time when the Democrats appealed to the outsiders? Sure. Sure. Oh, absolutely. But what what happened uh, in the interim to have this man feel so alienated from any system that Trump looked good? 
Well, Bernie Sanders, who's an outsider too, and is by, by choice in his political position, um, spoke for the same, for the same uh, um, unhappy and discontented and, sure. and, and I think um, understandably um, unhappy, people unhappy with their situation, whether it's through technology or globalization or immigration or, or, or simply the inevitable forces of the economy, whatever it is, they are unhappy and their unhappiness needs to be solved in some way or other. There's a, um, a political economist at um, Harvard, uh, Benjamin Friedman, who wrote the other day that no solution that Hillary or Trump uh, has proposed is going to solve any of the real, uh, or resist any of the underlying forces that are causing the, the predicament that the middle class is in, that it will take, and of course, with the political deadlock there is in this country and the tax phobia there is, it's unlikely that anything really radical is going to come forth, come forth out of this election. Nothing like when, when capitalism was seen to be under threat in the 1930s produced the radical legislation of the New Deal. There, it doesn't look as though the system can produce anything at least in the eyes of this professor, anything large enough mm -hmm. to deal with this problem. But at least Hillary Clinton, uh, I'm not advocating one way or another about Hillary Clinton, but Hillary Clinton, what Hillary Clinton has promised to do yes. is to go at the middle directly. In other words, not, not trickle it down, as right. some people would, or start necessarily from the top, but go directly toward the middle class, I, infrastructure I, and other stuff. And, my, and she'll be a domestic policy president. Absolutely. Yeah. But let me ask you this. Why is it then, that, what is it about Hillary Clinton that bothers people? She's a woman. Is that it? I mean, that's, that, that's, I certain, that's certainly she, one theory, yeah, that's it. She's, she's a woman in a country that seems to dislike seeing women being competitive and aggressive. And, um, and I agree. And, uh, and, uh, it's 90% of it. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's been pointed out that when Hillary actually achieves a position like election to the Senate, people like her a lot more. That's it's, right. It's in the struggle right. to get there that That's she right. has that, all the negative. That she, how dare her want to be a Wawa, fill in the blank. Well, there's yeah, that. And yeah. then there's also what she herself has called a long-term right-wing conspiracy to accuse her of this and that yeah. scandal. And she's, how many hours has she spent uh, testifying to congressional committees about one sure. investigation after? You know, I, I, it's not original with me because many, many of the, quote, common commentariat, in the commentariat have said this, that if you go through all the things that are held against her, mm -hmm. you know, the, by people who really don't like, Hillary Clinton, and you, well, she did this, she did this, she did this, she did this. You go on with the list, and then you say, okay, you go back through and name a man similar who did this and this and this and that with not the same negative effect. And to me, that tells you what I just said, that her number one obstacle has always been the fact that she's a woman. And she gets over at this time with the help of Donald Trump. Let's face it. Yeah, that's true. Seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
she may be over it, and it may be a, a may be a huge, a bigger, bigger thing than any of us have even can even even think about, because there's been so much other stuff to think about. The election of Hillary Clinton, the first woman as president of the United States, uh, could be something that says things for generations to come, and uh, it will have happened here, and it might not have happened if we hadn't had a candidate as flawed as, uh, what's his name? But as dogged, <laughs> but as dogged a fighter as she is. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's right. Absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. Absolutely right. Um, talk about the debates a bit. Uh, you ran 12 of these debates. You're on the debate commission. Yes. Uh, now we've had um, three uh, here. The second one was the wild, was the Donnybrook, uh, the second debate. Uh, it had happened just after the revelations of um, uh, uh, Trump uh, coming off the bus and making the comments on the bus and so forth. When somebody is as, when you have a wild situation like that, how does a moderator handle the debate? How does he tame it or does he try to control it? Does he just let it go? Well, there, there are no rules here. Uh, uh, Roger, the, I learned the hard way that um, uh, a debate, any given debate, uh, takes on a life of its own. And within the first few minutes, you can, uh, uh, you can control it at the beginning. Uh, the, the moderator can by just the questions he or she asks. And you can set the tone, hopefully. But they can take the tone away. And uh, Billy Bob candidate and Sammy Sue candidate can start doing just the opposite of what you want them to do. They can decide not to, to abide by the rules. In other words, just talk a little bit longer than they're supposed to. Or you could ask them about apples and they talk about oranges. Or that interrupting all the time that Trump Interrupt, is doing. Exactly. And, and there, there, there are a lot of things that are out of, out of the control of, of, uh, of the moderator. And um, uh, control is everything. And, and, but, it, but, but the irony, uh, I don't know if irony is the word, but uh, that's a word, that's the kind of word that McNeil uses a lot, but I don't know. The, the, Roger said it was dead. <laughs> <laughs> irony. That's true. Um, at the same time, you want, the moderator wants control, you also want the candidates to mix it up. So right. those, those moments when there is no control, when they're actually looking at each other. I mean, at one, at one, one debate when I did between Obama and the first time we were supposed to really open it up was Obama and McCain. And, and, uh, and, and I said at the very beginning of the thing, well, and there, the rules have been changed and you know, modified or whatever. And uh, both McCain and, and uh, Obama knew exactly what the deal was. <laughs> and I would ask, Obama would say something and I'd turn to McCain, McCain would give an answer to Obama, and he would always look right at me. And then I, I, first couple of times, I said, well, you say that directly to the president. Or, well, he wasn't president then. Governor, Governor uh, I mean, uh, Senator, uh, Senator Obama. And uh, so I did that a couple of times, and he wouldn't do it. Mm. Uh, Obama would not. I mean, uh, McCain would not look at Obama. And finally, McCain said to everybody, so all millions of people, you know, all my family and former Sunday school teachers and everybody could hear, what's the matter, Jamie, you can't hear? <laughs> so I decided maybe there won't be any back and forth like that. Uh, but uh, the, 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 the difficult thing uh, that Chris Wallace, for instance, had in the sixth debate, in the, uh, the six, 2016, the last debate, 
where he set a tone at the beginning, which I, which I fully endorse as a member of the commission, and uh, uh, is that there was awful lot of stuff in the way, personal stuff, in the, in the wind, and, and, but he started with issues. And he said to the American people, this is what is really uh, what a debate should be. It was way down in there before he got you know, to the bus, the bus uh, tape and all the ramifications of that. And so you can do things like that, but there are limits to what a moderator can do. It's the, in the news hour, there were occasional, <laughs> occasional wild moments. Um, and I used to get a kick out of watching Robin handle a maniac, no matter who it was. There'd be somebody uh, um, uh, you know, uh, shouting and saying, I will kill him, I will destroy him, I will destroy his children, his children's children. And Robin would listen in that civilized way and with that wonderful voice say, I see. <laughs> um, I want to get off the election to talk about the, the, the wonderful lives and the careers of, of, uh, of both of you. Um, we were talking about two interesting public figures. Who are the, among the more interesting people you talked to during your lives and interviewed? Is it, is, it, is it harder to interview a hero than a scoundrel? I learned something from him. He was a young reporter in the, on the Dallas, I forget, was it the Times Herald? Times Herald, And yeah. they sent you out to the airport to interview a cardinal or something. And she said, why am I going out? And anyway, he went out to the airport and said, what's it like being a cardinal? How <laughs> <laughs> did it all came? <laughs> I learned a lot of interviewing from him because he, uh, no, seriously, because he, um, he, he wasn't afraid to say, I don't understand, or can you explain well, that? Well, well what? what he said to me, he said, one day, this was a compliment, and I took it as one, okay? All right. He said, oh, Jim, I've, I've learned so much from you. You've taught me how to ask dumb questions. <laughs> <laughs> that's what he's trying to say. That's but, it, but, but there's... That's there's, not true. He makes stuff up. Uh, that's not true. Well, that's another story. <laughs> Most but, uh, of the anecdotes about me, he's made up. <laughs> I, one day, he made a mistake of saying to me, uh, we were doing some, we, we'd been doing a lot of talking about stuff and stuff and back and forth and, and whatever. And he said, oh, well, just, you know, you know whatever, you know, I, you, you and I agree on stuff, just whatever you want to say, that's fine. So, uh, and it's okay. You know, so I got, to, I fell into this uh, habit, not a good habit, um, of somebody asked me a question that I really didn't want to answer. It's an event like this. Let's say, uh, let's say somebody would say, well, who's the, who's the neatest person you ever interviewed, say? Somebody like that. And I didn't want to answer that. I didn't want to answer that question. I would say, well, Robert McNeil always said his favorite person to answer. <laughs> and, and finally, Robin, this went on and on for a while. And Robin finally said to me, Jim, uh, somebody said it, you said it for a group of people in, in Sioux City, Iowa, that I was in favor of, you know, whatever it is. And uh, I said, oh, gosh, Robin, I forgot to tell you, I had told you that I told somebody you said this, but I had really got, I really got bad about it. But what, but what it was, made, it was a wonderful thing for me was because if I didn't want to say something, I could blame, I could, you know, 
I could put it on him. He also refers to me as the former Robert McNeil. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember that when people on the street occasionally stop me and say, how does it feel to be retired, Mr. Lehrer? <laughs> Robert, would you tell us all how the news hour came to be? Well, um, first of all, uh, Jim and I found ourselves partners in uh, Washington in 1973 for a few months doing a weekly program called America 73. And uh, then uh, the Senate Watergate hearings were announced and public television decided to cover them, not only all day long without interruptions, but to repeat that at night. And he and I jointly anchored them for 47 days and nights. Oh. And um, um, many people in public television had thought we should be doing uh, sophisticated entertainment and education and culture and not journalism, not public affairs, because that would cause controversy and everything. But our coverage of the Senate Watergate hearings, which clearly were a turning point in this country in all kinds of ways, got more and more people suddenly watching their public television stations and sending money to them. That turned people's heads around in public television. And people began saying, well, you've become a team. You should do a daily show. And so we said yes if there was the money and the stations wanted it. It took two years to bring it together for one reason, because our immediate bosses in Washington said, well, you can't be on the air and run the program. And we said, why not? And uh, anyway, you said, thank yeah. God. You and, uh, so um, after some discussions of this, incidentally, we'd come under a lot of attacks from the Nixon White House just for being doing journalism on public television. Mm -hmm. I mean, at that time, I was anchoring uh, Washington Week in reviews. It was known then. And uh, Nixon's appointee as the head of CPB said that program shouldn't be on the air. You know, anyway, we finally got it together in the fall of 1975, when the New York station said, we're under Jay Islin and Bob Kotlowitz, both late friends, said, uh, you can do it any way you like here. And we got it together. At first, your bosses said, well, you can't be on every night. That's right. And That's right. It, so uh, it began uh, with my name on it and for Terrible six, title. Tell them what the title of the show the was. The title was The Robert McNeil Report. A, <laughs> a brilliant title. Uh, Terrible title. Uh, no, actually, uh, it, it came about because um, Angela Solomon, who was the public relations and press representative for Channel 13, came up after I'd been there a couple of months and said, what are you going to call the program? And I said, well, I've, all, I've been making a list. Well, Newsnight, Newswatch, Newsform, all the really ripping titles. Anyway, she said, I thought we'd hired somebody smart. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, why not use your own name? And I said, this is how naive a Canadian I was then, new to New York. Um, well, what do you mean? What if a year from now, Jay isn't wanted somebody else to do the job? And she said, dummy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, finally, uh, Jay isn't offered the program to PBS. They ran it free. The stations liked it. Uh, more and more stations liked it. And within six months, it became the McNeil era report. But it also changed, it changed television journalism. It started to, to teach everybody how to think about the news. It wasn't just a, um, a, uh, a, re a rehearsal of what had happened during the day. Well, we tried to be different. 
and, and it was easier to be different then, because most cities sure. had only three or four stations, mm. including yeah. one educational. And it was quite easy to be different, and also we were put on in the half hour after NBC and CBS Nightly News. In fact, we even took out one daring ad, watch Walter Cronkite, then watch us, you know. That's and, right, um, that's right. And so, and because we decided talking heads can be interesting, which the commercial industry despised at that time, we can make it interesting, and so we worked to do that. And we were different in that sense. And yeah. we did one subject for half an hour for seven years. You had, uh, uh, I remember, your, and I quote you here accurately, <laughs> uh, one of the most marvelous things you ever said was, was uh, there, the whole talking, people were putting us down because we were talking heads. And you said, and I cannot quote you accurately, but you said very emotionally and firmly, Look, where was it when you first heard that somebody you loved was ill? That somebody you knew and cared about had lost their lives? That you had just given birth to a child? It was a talking head that told you that. All the important things of life that you've been told, you heard from a talking head. That's the business we're in. Yeah. And that shut him up. <laughs> well, the other, my other. You also, the other one was, the, yeah. other, the other one was, uh, somebody wrote in the first, first time we ever had anything nice written about us was the man named uh, Tom. He was the, he was the uh, media critic for, uh, it wasn't called media critic then, it was called journalism critic uh, at uh, Time Magazine. He wrote a piece and he said, that McNeil and Lara had the courage to be serious. And the thing we added to it was, we also had the courage to be boring, if it's necessary <laughs> right. from time right. to time. Uh, my um, mantra, which Jim has heard me say a thousand times, in public television, if you can't be better than commercial television or different from, you shouldn't be begging Forget for it. money from the public. And uh, whether you're better or not is, always a, a question with all sorts of ramifications. But whether you're different from is easier to identify. And uh, our successor program, the PBS NewsHour, is still different from commercial television. And of course, all public television is different to the extent that it doesn't have commercial interruptions every seven, seven minutes. But different from is important. And I think if public television ever loses that, and ever wants, because there are people in public television who want to become more like the real world of television, as they see it, commercial television, and where the greater rewards are. And they would like to be more like that. Well, if, if public television ends going that way, it will disappear. And the other thing you, you said from the very beginning, which has been the hallmark of this program when it started, and it still is, is you said we're in the business of civil discourse. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, civil discourse is a term yeah. that is terribly relevant right now. And, uh, but you said that at the very beginning. You said that to everybody. You said that to me. That's what we're doing. Did either of you have a favorite moment on the news hour other than the essay portion of the show? <laughs> <laughs> 
which, by the way, Mike Salsa is in the audience, and my, my genius friend was the one who created this, so I, I take no credit. I give it all to Mike. Um, but fa a favorite moment, um, uh, e e either in terms of an interview or um, a news item that you had to suddenly rise to? Well, when we were in a half-hour mode, doing a whole program for a whole subject for a half an hour, we had all kinds of disasters. Um, we did a half hour on the Ogallala Aquifer, uh, which was a huge underground water supply in the high plain states that was deemed being depleted at the rate of a foot a year and replenishing itself naturally about an inch a year. We had four guests lined up who knew all about this, two in Washington with him, two with me. I interviewed the first guy and said, when is this going to become really serious? And he said, about 2030. <laughs> oh, yeah. The second or third night, we did Spain after Franco. Franco, inconsiderately, didn't die for another year and a half. In the early days, we'd been on the air maybe for two or three months. And Robin came down with something. Had a, you had to have an operation, a hernia operation, something like that, some kind of harmless operation. Let's not get, let's not get too intimate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, I had to fill in. And uh, we'd already scheduled the programs. And lo and behold, we were confronted with having to do 30 minutes on some elections in Portugal. And I said to the then executive producer, why the hell are we doing this program on Portugal? I forgot. Uh, oh, well, but remember Robin had a house there in Portugal. And he, <laughs> he, he knows, he, he really cares about <laughs> Portuguese elections. And I said, well, that's really great, but Robin happens to be in a hospital in New York. And, uh, you know, whatever. At any rate, for me, I started, we had four guests, you know, one subject tonight. So that meant 30 minutes on these elections in Portugal. And I'm, I'm about 12 minutes in. I've interviewed all four of these people. <laughs> 12 minutes in, and I'm thinking, we have now told the American people more than they're ever going to want to know about the Portuguese election. And, but, and I'm thinking, I still got, what, 16 minutes at least still to go. Two, 18 minutes still to go. Anyhow. I go in, you know, about, get up to about 20 minutes, and I think, oh, my God, now we've told even the Portuguese people more <laughs> And I still had 10 minutes to fill. And to this day, I always was going to go back and, first of all, bury the tape if I could find it after I looked at it. But I gave you so much hell after that, I said, you get your... <laughs> out of bed and get back in there. We're going to quit doing these things. <laughs> Can I tell a story about the first live television interview I did? I remember to this day, it was uh, 1954 in Ottawa, Canada, and I was finishing my mediocre BA and working for the CBC on the radio. And they opened the first television station and they decided to cover with a mobile unit the Ottawa Valley Exhibition, which is kind of like a state fair in the States. And I was there on a live feed with a lollipop mic saying, good evening, for the first time, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation is going to provide television coverage of the Ottawa Valley Exhibition. 
before we cede to the lights of this year's X, we're very fortunate to have the man who for the last 27 years <laughs> has led this important cultural event, Mr. I'm terribly sorry, I've forgotten your name. <laughs> he, this is live. He told me his name, and then I suddenly remembered, I've got to turn for political reasons and interview the guy on the other side. I kept stretching out the first interview, trying desperately to remember the other guy's name. Finally, I had to turn to the camera and say, we're also fortunate to have another two men. You're not going to believe this, sir. I've forgotten your name, too. <laughs> Equal time. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> it's, it's training like that that has made Canadian broadcast <laughs> so welcome in the United States. I, I tell you, there, there were times that, that um, there was an unspoken rule, but I think the spoken rule, that there was no joking and no laughter on the news hour. Therefore, when something funny happened on the news hour, it was twice as funny as it would be in the ordinary world. <laughs> and... I don't know, I think you fellows may remember, uh, Charlene Hunter Galt was doing a, a series, an interview on the uh, always riveting subject of education. And uh, the, there was a woman from Wisconsin um, uh, with a German name. And so she said, um, and good evening, Miss uh, Wagenschweger. And she said, that's Wugenschweger. <laughs> Char Charlene dutifully said, Fugenschwager. The woman said, that's Hasenpfeffer. <laughs> the camera started to tremble because the whole issue of the interview became the pronunciation of this woman's name. <laughs> great, great moments in sports. I, uh, we, are, we are coming to a point where we're going to ask questions, and there was one question I would, wanted to ask these two uh, really remarkable men who um, brought the highest intelligence and, and, and integrity and uh, honesty and plain decency. Uh, to TV journalism. Was this worth a life? Both of you could have been writers. You could have done something else. You could have been an actor. Um, uh, the, uh, all those things spun out in front of you. Uh, you invented a show, very rare. You stayed with it all this time, polished it, leave it to others to continue so you uh, uh, create a legacy. Um, if you've ever thought about your lives, are you pleased with the choices that you made? Amen, 100%. I can't imagine having a better life than I've had. I'm having, I'd say. The, the uh, mind is blessed uh, with the professional life as well as the personal life. Uh, the professional life is, is simply that I have... I can honestly say that um, there are few people who have made news in the last 40 years that I haven't had some kind of contact with. Right. I've, I've interviewed every kind of person. There are no kind of cliches left for me. In other words, somebody says, oh, well, it's just a left-handed uh, person from Wawa. I interviewed one of them. <laughs> oh, well, she was in the... I interviewed one of them. And, and the process, because of the nature of our program, to interview somebody on, on, on our program requires more than knowing their name. Because I mean, clearly, clearly it does. <laughs> but I mean, you had to really kind of get into it. And it was part of the job. And it, it, to have, the, have the, the luxury of being forced to know 
a little bit about a little bit more than others did about things that matter. Very good. Was it was it was a great great experience for me, and to meet all kinds of different people, and uh, to work with people who shared this uh, the McNeil. I mean, yes, I I'm not I'm not I'm not falsely modest here, but it was basically Robbins. Uh, vision that started this whole thing, and but there were many of us who who followed that and and lived with it and enjoyed it and uh, and prospered uh, intellectually and otherwise uh, with it. And uh, I'm I'm a very there's nothing worse for me to be around somebody who's fortunate and either doesn't know it or won't admit it. Nice. I am not one of those people. Very good. Nor. Um, <laughs> Nor am I, and uh, I fell into journalism because I wasn't any good or wasn't going to succeed in the things I wanted to do, which is, first of all, really dumb to be an actor. And, uh, uh, and I fortunately had an epiphany that told me I'd be a lousy actor, and I quit that. Then I wanted to be a playwright, and the plays didn't sell, and one thing led to another, and I became a journalist. But I've had a magnificently... Uh, Life has been extremely generous to me in this way. And having a friend and colleague like him, where I never had to worry that somebody was going to be competitive in terms that threatened my career, quite the contrary. Um, and television is a very competitive business. And uh, so having a friend and colleague like Jim has been a reward in itself. Amen, 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 amen yeah. for me. We are going to turn to the questions now from the audience, and I ought to tell you that questions from the 92nd Street Y audience are different from <laughs> other questions. When I gave a reading here a number of years ago, I finished what I thought was a moving reading about one of my masterworks, <laughs> and um, I looked for questions, and there were no questions, and then someone raised his hand and said, are you related to Yosela Rosenblatt? <laughs> the great Ukrainian cantor. <laughs> I did not know if I was related to Yosla Rosenblatt, the great Ukrainian cantor, and I said so, and then I looked around the audience praying that there would be another question. No. First guy says, what a voice. <laughs> I look around then, praying again, somebody, please ask me about my work. Nobody. He raises his hands again. He says, you don't look a thing like him. <laughs> so, it, this is interesting. Does Hillary have a chance of uniting the country after all this? We assume that Hillary wins. We talked about what would happen to Trump if he lost, big or small. Uh, what does Hillary have to do to unite the country? I think that she has a marvelous opportunity to unite the country. However, it will be increasingly difficult based on the margin of victory. In other words, if she wins by a huge amount, and let's say the Senate goes Democratic, and either the, and the House either goes Democratic or is just marginally Republican, she has the ability to do what she says she wants to do, and she can do it in a way that that and she will have the time have the time and the energy and the willingness to explain it as she's doing it and bring 
people on board. Uh, and uh, I think the, the opportunity is there for her to bring the country together. But if, if one of those things, for instance, if she wins by a, a, a small margin and the Democrats don't gain control of the Senate or the House, it's, it could be we could have a rough, rough patch and the country will, will, will defiantly not go uh, with her. If, if, it, it really, I hate to say it this, this grossly, but uh, it had, the re end result has to be, in, a, in one way at least, and I hadn't thought of it to this very moment, so uh, I probably shouldn't say it, but I'm going to, too, because if I don't, never mind. Um, uh, I think the end result has to be s such that uh, neither she nor the country has any choice but to get together. In other words, all the excuses are gone. Oh, she can't, oh, Hillary doesn't have to do this because she won by a set, you know. In other words, she's off the hook and the people who didn't vote for her are off the hook and because they were still a huge bunch of them and Trump, Trumpism has still got, got some life to it and whatever, and, and the right wing is this and the left wing is that, and there's still some Bernie Sanders people that don't want to go along. You know, all the, all the fractioning, fracturing of, 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 the, of the American public, if it remains fractured, ain't going to happen. I would I'd agree. The size of um, if she wins, her victory is very important. Also important is the attitude of what used to be called the loyal opposition. I mean, the, um, the opposition to Obama set out to obstruct. That's right. And, and did. He proposed. If that continues and she doesn't win the Senate or is on the margin and doesn't uh, improve the Democratic position in the House, then um, the chances of her getting any legislation through are difficult. If, if the mindset, which Mitch McConnell famously said um, after Obama's re-election, the main, um, the most important thing in his job w was to prevent uh, Obama having a second term. Sorry, I've got mm -hmm. the timing wrong. Was to prevent, the, and he did everything, um, I think uh, evidently, notoriously, to to do what he could to prevent that. He didn't prevent it, but um, well, as an example, the Senate has refused to move under his leadership to move on Obama's Supreme Court. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. For nine outrageous, months now, outrageous. I think it is. Yeah. And it goes, beyond just, it goes beyond just legislation. If you have a strong president with all kinds of power, uh, uh, the, the people in Upper Ukahakawakistan are going to pay a little more attention than they would be if you, if you see a weird, well, even somebody named Putin might even see things differently. Everything, the whole, it will affect, not just, it'll affect everything. And uh, we so, can be hopeful. This is the flip side of this. You, we started to talk about this um, before, not quite to the extent of this question. Will Trump take his candidacy to the nth degree and cause a rebellion, uh, an insurrection? Um, the question implies that Trump would deny the validity of the vote and therefore get whatever number of people it is. It's still frightening how many people he attracts. I get whatever number of people they are and just go off. He himself has said it depends on the margin. 
on how big. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'll be living in Tuscany if that happens, but it won't matter. I'm going to make Nova Scotia. I, 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 think, <laughs> I, I think it's unlikely that that's going to. I agree with Robin that the the margin will will probably. I don't know if exactly what you. I think. The margin will dictate that, and I think a lot of those oh ifs, oh my God, a lot of the ifs are not going to be practical. And they, some, some, such of the loyal opposition, so much of it was determined to demonstrate the illegitimacy of Obama's presidency. I know. Right. And, I know. Um, so I know. we'll see. What structural changes would you like to see to improve American elections, and uh, how would we achieve them? Assuming that you would like to see structural changes. You, you, you mean the, uh, I don't. In the general system. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I mean, I like, kinda, I like it to be messy. I like our system. I, I don't want it too neat and tidy. Well, uh, sure isn't so, that now. Yeah. As long as everybody's treated fairly, as long as and people, more importantly, have, are perceived as having been treated fairly, then um, I kind of like it all kind of, uh, uh, as I say, messy. I don't, I don't have any, another, I also, bottom line is, I haven't studied the electoral process where I, I don't have a, a list of things, a reform list, that's not my thing. There's one um, uh, move or gesture that I approve of, uh, whether it'll go anywhere or not, would be to depoliticize, if possible, the state-by-state -state control of redistricting um, oh, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good idea. And, um, but I, I think, uh, and that then determines, and that in, will flow to some extent from how right. large a vote the uh, two parties get down, down the uh, ballot in this election. And, and whether, I mean, so many, uh, in the eight years of Obama, so many uh, governorships and state legislatures have been captured by the Republicans and that has led to redistricting um, struggles, which are controversial and in the courts and everything else. But it's so that very few House seats are now really competitive in this election. So either Democrat or Republican. Yeah, because yeah. they've been gerrymandered yeah. to ensure a result. It's a different sort of question, and, and um, uh, it's one of these questions that's um, about something that's in our face every day. Do you feel that the social media has played a positive or a negative role in this election? This may be the first election where social media um, uh, has had any play at all. Twitters and tweets and all that. Well, I think the risk to conventional journalism, square journalism as we grow up with, is immense that I see the social media it's kind of devouring journalism. Either, either they're retailing stuff that serious journalists have collected, and, uh, but what they really want is stuff that has more clickbaits in it, that cause more people to click on Twitter or whatever, the Facebook or so on. And uh, even the New York Times now, I know from talking to one of their um, star reporters, in, the, in reviewing uh, editorial stuff the next day, they talk about the number of tweets or clicks or whatever that certain stories got mm -hmm. on the social media. And for surviving, to survive the serious newspapers like the Times and the Washington Post and so on, have to and are relegating more and more of their resources to appealing to people online mm -hmm. with video and 
so on. Um, it is, uh, I don't know, I think the whole, and now AT&T wants, wants to buy Time Warner and so on. I mean, so, yeah. it is, I've never lived in a time of such extraordinary confusion oh, and, right. and unanswerable questions about where all the media are going. There's, there's a, you could call it a revolution, you could call it a tsunami, whatever. Uh, we, we are in the middle of something that we don't really understand and haven't got a hold of yet. Social media is the ultimate kind of double-edged sword and a huger, huger double-edged sword, which is this revolution about everybody knows everything about everything and nothing, you know. Uh, everything is available, but it's not accessible. Uh, everything, is, everything is available, but, but, but it's not always believable. And the flow of stuff, you know, through social media, through the various things that, that uh, are now available uh, online are, are incredible. And some of it's fabulous. I mean, it is terrific. And that's, the, that's one side of, 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 the, uh, of the sword. The other side of the sword is uh, the social media is a perfect example. Uh, oh yeah, it's terrific. People are uh, are communicating in ways they've never communicated before. We now we talk about we 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 we, we uh, share all kinds of information that we've never shared before. Yeah, we share it with everybody in the world. I mean, because everything can be hacked and is being hacked. Anybody who writes anything in an email today is an idiot. <laughs> you know, unless you, I mean, if he th if he or she thinks it's going to be private, there is no privacy's gone, done, over, forever. And, uh, uh, and, and the, the whole world of journalism is, uh, is in a state of revolution and uh, people are getting hurt. The jobs are being hurt. People are getting information that's faulty. People are not getting information they should have before they cast votes and all this. In other words, everything is, is, is very much in, 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 in uh, flux at the moment. And, uh, and, and you just looked at your watch, which is a sign that I should shut up. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a, sign that, it's a sign that we all should. For, for 22 years, I had the, um, uh, the uncommon privilege of working, I was going to say in the shadow, but it was really in the light of these two gents uh, who uh, changed everything in television and therefore um, not only took the news seriously, but took America seriously. And, uh, taught us in some way to be uh, both serious and civilized. Um, the country owes you a great deal. Oh, please. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.